Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. At the end of the program, I ask each speaker to spend a minute to discuss something that they are optimistic about. Rick Banks returns to What Happens Next as my co-host. Rick is a Stanford Law professor, and he is also the co-founder and faculty director of the recently established Stanford Center for Racial Justice. Rick is also the author of Is Marriage for White People? How the African-American Marriage Decline Affects Everyone. The topic on this week's call will be the intersection of Silicon Valley and race. Rick will introduce our speakers in a moment. Each month, I have made some observation about the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report, and this month's labor announcement on Friday was particularly eye-opening. Since the outset of the pandemic, U.S. employment is now down by approximately 15 million jobs. In July, 1.8 million jobs were added on the month and 9.1 million jobs in aggregate for the last three months. So the employment picture has improved dramatically, but the changes have not been uniform by industry. Of all industry, sector, of all industry sectors, leisure and hospitality employment is down the most, with 4.3 million job losses, and that represents 30% of all the lost jobs in the U.S. economy. These leisure jobs are returning with a bump this month of 600,000 jobs. But needless to say, more jobs will require a renewed desire to travel, stay at hotels, and fly. Good luck on that. You may recall from a previous discussion on what happens next, economist Betsy Stevenson focused on dental office employment as an example. I'm happy to say dental offices have reopened, and dental and healthcare employment generally is now down only 6% from employment peaks in February. Most other industries are seeing declines in employment by sector between 5 and 10%, with the exception of financial services, which is little changed. Your age makes a significant difference in your employment status. Pre-pandemic unemployment for individuals aged 20 and over was just 5%, while teenagers 18 to 19 years old was a 12% unemployment rate. The teenagers were the first ones to lose their job during COVID. Unemployment for this age cohort surged to an incredible 35% in March, but has since come down to just 19% now. I'm happy to report that what happens next is helping this age group, as we recently hired this week our first intern, Justin Benjamin. The topic of the day is race, so let's see how the employment change differs by race. Total economy-wide unemployment has increased by 6.7% since February. White unemployment is up by 6.1%, blacks 88 Asians 9.5, and Hispanics 8.5, respectively. I suppose that the difference in the change in employment by race reflects the differences in the age dispersion with whites older and the fact that whites are less represented in the worst-hit leisure and hospitality sector. In conclusion, U.S. employment continues to improve, but we have a long way to go. The drop in total employment is 15 million, of which 10 million are unemployed, and 5 million have dropped out of the labor force and are not looking for work currently. If kids do not go back to school in person in the fall, I suspect that a substantial number of moms will not be going back to work in full-time employment. Let me spend a minute to tell you about our upcoming shows. Next Sunday, we'll focus on the pandemic's effect on emerging markets with experts in economics, law, and sociology from Mexico, Argentina, and Africa. The week after next, we'll focus on gang violence, the history of public health, and the controversy over monuments. I'm particularly excited about three weeks out, August 30th, 
as this will be a special episode on young adults. We will have 10 young adults discuss for three minutes each their personal challenges in this COVID world. We will also have a couple of adults discuss college admissions, the ACT, and your ment- and youth mental health. All right, the introduction is over. Let me turn it over to my co-host, Stanford Law Professor Rick Banks, to make his opening remarks and to introduce today's speakers. Go ahead, Rick. Thank you, Larry. Uh, I'm happy to be here today. Uh, I'm coming to you from Silicon Valley, where most of our speakers also live. There are two aspects of Silicon Valley that prompted today's focus. One is that Silicon Valley has been the source of unrivaled wealth creation. Its ecosystem of venture capital firms, entrepreneurs, tech companies, and philanthropists cannot be found anywhere else. The second is that few African Americans are part of that ecosystem. In the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, our nation has turned to the unfinished work of racial justice. And so it seems essential to talk not only about rights and restricting government power, but also about resources. So today we are fortunate to have uh, a prominent representative from different aspects of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. First up is Bill Gurley, a native of Texas and a graduate of his business school, For for two decades, Bill Gurley has been a partner at Benchmark, one of the leading venture capital firms in the world. They have funded and guided the founders of Uber, Dropbox, Twitter, Instagram, and eBay, Grubhub, Nextdoor, OpenTable. Well, you get the idea. I didn't meet Bill through venture capital, though. I first spotted him as the tallest parent at the back-to-school night. And when we watched our sons on the basketball court, I knew that he shared my love for the game. The difference, of course, was that he did play Division I college basketball. I've never played with Bill, but given his physical stature, I would only take to the court with him if we could be on the same team. Our second speaker will be John Hennessy. John Hennessy is a Renaissance man. He became an assistant professor of electrical engineering at Stanford in the late 70s. Within a decade, he had left to start his own company, which was an astounding success. And then after he returned to Stanford, he entered university administration and eventually served as the president of the university for 16 years. He is now director of Knight Hennessy uh, Scholars Program, which brings to campus some of the most promising students from all parts of the world. But none of that is why he's a part of this call. John is a part of this call because he has been a member of the board of directors at Google since this incorporation and is currently the board chair. That's a company whose profits last year, I believe, were roughly $34 billion, and which employs in excess of 100,000 workers worldwide. Next, we have Nicole Taylor. She is the CEO of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is the largest community foundation in the nation with assets in excess of of $12 billion. She's a graduate of Stanford with bachelor's and master's degrees. And ever since she left campus, Nicole has been striving to make the nation a fairer and more equitable place. She returned to the Bay Area uh, less than two years ago from Arizona State University, and we're delighted to have her back home. My only regret is that although we did overlap as undergraduates, Nicole and I never met during that time. Our next guest is Charlie Moore, who is a Silicon Valley veteran and also a veteran in that other sense. Charlie graduated from the United States Naval Academy and served as a Navy officer and is also a Gulf War veteran. He came to Silicon Valley as a lawyer and soon embarked on an entrepreneurial career. He is the founder and CEO of Rocket Lawyer, one of the most widely used legal services in the world with operations in the United States and the United Kingdom. Charlie uh, uh, has a son, as I do, and they both play basketball. Uh, we are 
share we, we, we share joy in that they've excelled. Uh, and also, for my part, uh, a bit of sadness that my son has surpassed me so far in his capabilities. Nearly two decades ago, John Rice, our next speaker, left the corporate world so that he could transform the corporate world. He is the founder and CEO of Management Leadership for Tomorrow, known as MLT. It is a leading nonprofit organization uh, for developing college students from underrepresented groups into business leaders. MLT has transformed the lives of more than 8,000 students and works with more than 150 of America's leading corporations. I've admired MLT for years, but I most remember John for what happened on the basketball court. Yet basketball is a theme and a preoccupation of mine at this moment. But what happened on the basketball court decades ago, when I was in law school and John was in business school? I won't recount the details, but let's just say his team did well. And if there had been an MVP award for the Harvard Intramural Basketball League in the early 90s, he would have received it. That's not surprising because he starred on the basketball team at Yale, where he is now a member of the board. Our final speaker is Darren Dodson, the founder and CEO of Illumin Capital, a for-profit social impact investor. A graduate of Stanford Business School, Darren is passionate uh, in his advocacy for social and economic justice, especially for disadvantaged and marginalized groups. His work with impact investors, private equity funds, Fortune 100 companies, universities, and foundations is built around trying to leverage finance and business development to address some of the world's most pressing social and environmental problems. Darren currently serves on the board of Ben and Directors. I have had to resist my temptation to approach him in that role to see if there's something he can do to get our family free ice cream for life. That's our speaker lineup for today. Larry, back to you. Great. Okay, our first speaker is Bill Gurley. As mentioned before by Rick, he is a partner at Benchmark Capital, whose firm has funded Uber, Dropbox, Twitter, Instagram, and eBay. Bill, why don't you lead us off? Thanks. Um, Rick, just one clarification. I practiced D1 basketball much more than I played. I want to make that clear. Um, I've, I've, I've never prepared a six-minute talk before, but it, I think it's harder than a 30, and so I'm going to jump right in and move move quickly. Um, the first thing I'm going to do to, to make my talk more efficient is just declare that it's a cold, hard fact that African Americans are underrepresented in roles in Silicon Valley. Engineers, executives, CEOs, boards, VCs, founders, I think it's undeniable, and so I, don't, I didn't think there was a need to go through the data. Um, there's simply vast underrepresentation. So the questions become, you know, can this change, and if so, how? Um, my, my first point I want to make about, you know, is upward mobility possible is to point out that some people like to, to argue that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy, and why do they feel that way? Well, certain ethnicities have over-indexed in Silicon Valley, um, and, and that's particularly true of Asians that have immigra immigrated here. And you will find that in every role, engineers, executives, CEOs, VCs. Um, they also over-index in our university system, especially in high tech. So Asian Americans are 5% of the population, but are 30% of MIT undergrads, just as one example. Um, I would say uh, immigrants from India have, have done extremely well in Silicon Valley. There's, I found a core question that was, are Indians dominating Silicon Valley. Five years ago, the LA Times declared, quote, Indian immigrants are tech's new titans. And in that article, they, they noted, obviously, um, that the CEO of Microsoft and Google were now of Indian descent, but that of 
uh, the startups founded in Silicon Valley, 16% come from, are founded by Indians who represent only 6% of the population. So we have over-indexing by certain ethnicities. What, what can we take away from that? Um, it doesn't highlight why we have a problem with African Americans. It only highlights that upward mobility is possible and there might be clues to look to from those examples that could aid in creating change. Is change possible? Um, I believe it is possible. Over the past decade, there's been an intense spotlight put on gender inequality in Silicon Valley. The problem is far from solved, far from solved. But there is change, and I'm optimistic about the progress. I also believe that the progress that is, that is happening on that front is systematic. By that, I mean it's permanent and self-reinforcing, and I expect it to continue to improve. What caused the change? Intense spotlight on the problem, press, social media, local advocates, new organizations created like Eileen Lee's All Rays, Sue Kinder's board list. There was even a California state law about board representation. Is there progress? I do think there is. In 2019, women there were 52 women VCs added up from 38 the year before, and I expect it to be higher this year. Facebook's technical employees are up to 24% female from 15 in, in 2015. One data point you might not know going back to the university system, MIT's undergraduates are 40%, uh, 47% female and Harvey Mudd's are 49.6. I also feel progress in the ecosystem. Um, it used to be that people would discuss, you know, whether we needed gender equality in the boardroom. Today it's assumed. People don't ask, should we? They ask, how are we going to go about doing it? Um, I I, I've been very fortunate. I currently sit on the board of 10 companies. Five are led by women CEOs. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to work with Katrina Lake at Stitch Fix, who has blown away um, all, all types of metrics on this front. 86% employees are females, 62% of management, and 63% of the board. Once again, not declaring this problem solved, just highlighting there's healthy progress underway. So how do we drive change? here on this key issue around African-American participation in Silicon Valley. I recommend that we need two flashlights to make this happen. Flashlight number one is to continue to shine a bright light on the problem. Flashlight number one can be direct, it can sting, it might be angry, it, it needs to be continuous and it needs to be relentless. It turns out that the social media tools we, we created here are actually really good at driving transparency and accountability. Even in the past week, um, today there's an article in the Boston Globe that goes through all the public companies in the Northeast and says who does and doesn't have a, an African-American board member. I guarantee you that that has been passed around those boardrooms today. The orgs I mentioned before on the gender equality front are ramping up new initiatives. I won't steal their thunder, but you'll hear about them in the next few weeks. A friend of mine, Xander Lurie at SurveyMonkey, launched the Vendor Diversity Initiative in the past week where Intuit, Slack, Zoom, and 15 other companies, including his, SurveyMonkey, are dictating that all vendors that, that they buy from um, provide full transparency on all issues of diversity, most specifically race. Um, this event today is another part of flashlight, flashlight number one. Um, and I would also argue we need to continue to shine flashlight number one at the university system. While MIT uh, is doing extremely well on the gender diversity front on, on African-American diversity, both MIT and MUD are underrepresented relative to the population, and I'm sure many others are. Down deeper, there are other issues we need to continue to go after. I spoke to Hadi Portovi, who runs Code.org, while, while 
African Americans represent 21% of their K2 through 12 signups um, to teach coding to K through 12 kids. He highlighted a key problem, which is only 50% of U.S. high schools offer computer science, and the ones that are missing are heavily indexed to high African American populations. Now. I'm about to finish. Let me talk about another key flashlight. That's flashlight number two. I believe we need to highlight the success of all um, initiatives and individuals that are succeeding in Silicon Valley so that we can show what's possible for the next group to come here. Keep in mind, Silicon Valley is transient. Most of the people I know here that have succeeded here weren't born here. So the question becomes, how do you increase the flow of the top African Americans in the U.S. to Silicon Valley, make them feel comfortable, and make them feel that success is probable? In order to do that, flashlight number two has to convince them that that can happen. And my last point I would make that in the absence of flashlight number two, flashlight number one might actually discourage that type of migration. Thank you, Bill. Uh, our next speaker is John Hennessy. Uh, John is the former president of Stanford University, and he is currently the board chairman for Alphabet, uh, Google's holding company. Take care, John. Thank, th thank you, Larry, and thanks, Bill, for that great uh, overview. I think you hit a lot of key points. Uh, there's no doubt tech has a diversity problem, and I think that, that represents two bad things. First of all, it robs people of color of the incredible opportunities that are available in the technology industry. And secondly, it deprives the companies of the broader employee diversity, which given the scale now of the big tech companies and what our user population looks like, um, that's a real weakness uh, for the industry. Um, I, I will quote some numbers here. Um, so 2020 Alphabet Diversity Report shows that uh, it's 42% Asian and 52% white, 4% black. Um, and that's after, by the way, I should say, 2020 was a record hiring year for black engineers at, at Alphabet. So after that, it's still a major problem. Um, of course, the problem begins even at the board level. Um, only 20% of the board seats in the Fortune 500 are held uh, by any minorities at all. Um, we, we grappled with this issue on the Alphabet Board a few years ago and decided that we would follow the Rooney Rule. That is, we would um, ensure that every time we considered a new board member, we had a diverse slate of potential final candidates. And I think that's critical when you pick particularly board members because it's very easy for the existing board to go to their personal networks and their personal networks tend to look like them. I think uh, as Bill mentioned, uh, shining the flashlight is really important. This is something I think we learned over many years in the university. Measurement and annual reports make a difference. They keep the issue on the front burner and we need to do that. Look at the, if you, if you think about the situation um, that, and how long it took to get re gender representation up in the university, which is not yet at parity, but it's come up significantly, it took years of constant measurement and attention. So we need that kind of, that kind of flashlight, that kind of focus. Um, it's, I think, a, a, a key issue we have to think about as an industry as well is what happens as we move up the leadership ranks. Unfortunately, uh, the representation of, of blacks in the tech industry and the leadership ranks drops dramatically. 
from, even though it's five or six percent at the uh, through the corporation, it drops down to roughly half that by the time you start looking at uh, leadership. Um, a bright light, something that I think is beginning to get a change, uh, is is hiring more diversity through the use of internships. It's something that actually seems to be working. You you put a focus on diversity in the internships, and we're currently seeing, for example, in this last year, 25% uh, of our interns were from underrepresented uh, minorities, and 40% were women. Uh, so I think really driving that makes a, makes a difference. The other thing that makes a key difference is setting goals. Um, and you set those goals ambitiously. For example, um, uh, Sundar Pichai in the recent uh, notice from Google um, uh, set a goal to increase black representation at the leadership level inside the alphabet companies to 30% 30 30 by 2025. By 30%, I'm sorry, by 30%. Uh, we've got a number of other issues. Uh, retention is a key issue. Um, black technical workers drop out at a significantly higher rate, almost double uh, white and Asians. Um, so we've got to understand that problem. Uh, we brought a bunch of black Googlers together, and issues of inclusiveness and belonging come right to the front. Uh, so we've got to do a better job uh, training management. And that's become a, a, another focus. Um, to develop the education and train managers so that they know about things like implicit bias, they know about inequities, they know about stereotyping, and they think about how to build a more inclusive uh, environment. And that's now mandatory for all, everybody becomes a manager um, at, at Alphabet. Um, we're also thinking about direct action. What can, what can a company of Alphabet scale do to help support black businesses and black startups? Um, and we've allocated a, a, a significant amount of money to that that will focus on everything from trying to get better educational equity, uh, particularly at the high school and college level, a better representation of African Americans, um, but also focus on black-owned businesses and startups and developers and job training. Um, I, I want, the last uh, point I want to turn to is the point that Bill also focused on, which is our educational system. Um, we still don't have a pipeline that works well for African-Americans and Latinx uh, students. And we've got to figure out how to do that. Um, we managed to get the pipeline to work a lot better in STEM for women over a long period of time, but that took almost 30 years. We can't wait 30 years. We've got to focus our energy uh, and push harder. Key problem here is that many, of, many young people um, come from under-resourced high schools. Instead of getting calculus and AP computer science, they got much more basic courses. And for them, it's a struggle to succeed in college. So we've got to build up support systems. Um, we've got one at Stanford, Black in Computer Science. Um, meet with them, hear their challenges, think about how we build a better bridge and ensure more young people can get into the tech industry. I, I think the tech industry offers so many opportunities. We need the diversity that a, a bigger population and more African-Americans would bring us, and we need to provide them the opportunity to succeed in this wonderful industry. Thank you. Thanks, John. Uh, our next speaker is Nicole Taylor. Uh, she is the CEO of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. This is the largest community foundation in the United States with an excess of $10 billion in assets. Nicole, take it away. Great. Thank you. And the only woman on the panel, so so much for gender progress. I had to point that out, Bill, sorry. Um, 
So I'm going to ground us a little bit in reality, which um, and, and a little bit of the statistics. Silicon Valley has always been a tale of two valleys, with world-famous innovation, increased job growth, extreme wealth on one hand, and then on the other hand, many families struggling to make ends meet. And when you disaggregate the data, it's about race. The two primary counties in the valley, San Mateo and Santa Clara County, the black poverty rates at 9%, the white poverty rates at 2%. Santa Clara County, black poverty rates at 11%, white poverty rates is at 3%. And that's, this is pre-COVID numbers. So when you look at what's happening with our companies here in the Valley, it, for many of us, it's no surprise because we as a community haven't taken care of vulnerable populations in our communities of color. And everything that both Bill and John said about the numbers and the numbers in corporate America are absolutely, it's um, actually, I would say shameful. There's a lot of good work being done, and I actually am really glad that two white men preceded me because we need the voices. We need men to step up. We need white men to step up. We need men in power to step up and really shine these lights. So I appreciate what both Bill and John had said. Um, I have four things that I think um, make a difference. Understand, commit, invest, and stay in for the long term. And when I say understand, I need this to be very personal for everyone. You have to personally commit to wanting to make a change. You have to personally commit to understanding and educating yourself, and if you're a leader, your leadership team, on what is happening in the communities that you live and work, what is happening with the black employees in your company. I think, you know, what uh, John mentioned, what's happening at Google in terms of understanding why black technical workers are leaving. Those of us who've been uh, in situations where we are just one of a handful of black folks in whatever the, whatever the industry is, it's really hard. It is really isolating. So I applaud that, that that effort's happening. That needs to happen everywhere. You need to understand what really is happening with your workforce, your workforce of color. And, and at using your positions of privilege, understand what racism has done to individuals and what it's done to the very fabric of our communities. And get help. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of places that you can get help, but this has to be a personal commitment. This, this, um, if it's not personal, um, we've seen other things just kind of be like flashpoints. You know, the attention's on it in our country right now. Companies are stepping up and making, making um, declarations of what they're going to do, which is great. But I want to make sure that people actually understand this at a very personal level. You've got to commit. The diversity uh, efforts that both Bill and John talked about are absolutely important. The Rock Center for Corporate Governance at Stanford just issued a report in April about the Fortune 100. Only 16 have a non-white CEO. Three of those are black. Only 26 have all, you know 26 of them have all white C plus one, so C suites and CEO direct reports. So, and only four have non-white CFOs. So it's absolutely important when we're talking about diversity across the workforce. It is not a pipeline problem, it is a will problem. Are you recruiting from HBCUs? Are you recruiting at universities that have efforts, you know, I'm my alma mater, John, you've done amazing work, yes, in terms of gender diversity and, and people of color and students of color 
um, in engineering and computer science specifically. That's fantastic. So as companies, are you all looking at where you're recruiting and are you training your managers on what to do once you bring people of color and once you bring, especially with black interns, into your, into your environment? What is that like for them? Right? Decision makers have immense power over who gets hired, who gets promoted, who gets trained. And diversity hiring, diversity hiring efforts oftentimes in companies are at lower level, entry level positions focused on the diversity and inclusion areas of the business. We're, you know, making sure that those hiring efforts are around the high potential positions and path to executive level positions. So once you've figured out, you've understood, you've made the commitment, you got to invest. And you actually need to invest in the communities in which you're working. Literally, how are you supporting Black-led organizations? How are you supporting movements that are actually doing on-the-ground work in terms of dismantling structural racism? You know, the investments that so many companies have come out and said that they really want to invest in racial equity. There are a ton of efforts happening on the ground. How are you with companies and leaders partnering with the folks on the ground trying to create the change? And look beyond just funding. You know, one of the things that there's a, I understand there's a lot of folks in the financial industry. How are you using products? If you're investing in a fintech company, if you're running a fintech company, so many communities are unbanked. How are we producing products, especially now we're sheltering in place, everything is moving mobile and online, and so many folks who are struggling in our communities don't have access to banking structures, mainstream banking structures. We have, you know, such innovation and um, drive and creativity here. How are we using those resources to really get to our vulnerable populations and getting to the people that we say we care about? The, the folks who are most impacted by racial injustice. Um, and then finally, stay in it for the long term. You know, we've, it took 400 years for us to really collectively, it feels finally, wake up to the fact that racism is a problem in our country. It's not going to be solved overnight. And it's not going to be solved by one sector alone. It's going to be solved by companies, nonprofits, the government sector, philanthropy, all weighing in, coming to the table with what they can and the resources and the strength and the power that they bring. And know that it's going to take time and it is going to be exhausting. Those of us who've been fighting this our whole lives, we're exhausted and we're glad that other people are in the ring with us fighting it out. Uh, but it's going to take time and dedication and persistence. But I have hope now um, because we have different players and different voices speaking up and different people who are willing to put themselves, their companies, their leadership on the line for change. So I have hope in it. I just ask you all to just stay in it, stay in the game for the long term. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Charlie Moore. Uh, Charlie is the founder and CEO of Rocket Lawyer. Uh, Rocket Lawyer is one of the most widely used legal services in the world with operations in the United States and the United Kingdom. Charlie, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me. Um, since this is a call without uh, video, who knew you could still do that? Um, but definitely I'm good old for school. me I have a face. <laughs> well, I have a face for radio, so it works for me too. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know, uh, since folks can't see me, that I am African-American. 
uh, that's relevant uh, for many reasons, but here it's relevant because we'd be hard pressed to put together, uh, as Rick talked about basketball, you know, we'd be hard pressed to put together a basketball team, maybe not even a starting five, made up exclusively of African-American founder CEOs of venture-backed companies with around $100 million or more of revenue. Uh, it's a very small um, group of people, and, um, and, and I'm very proud to be one of them. Uh, it's been a story of perseverance. Uh, it's been a story of standing on the shoulders of other people. I'll tell you about some of them. Uh, and, you know, uh, not to be pretentious, but I'll do a little Shakespeare. You know, I don't, I don't come to praise or to bury the venture capital industry. Um, I've obviously been a beneficiary of it. Um, it, is, it is racist. There are uh, racist elements uh, in venture capital, just like everywhere else. Uh, we all have uh, bias. Uh, conscious and unconscious biases, as, as Rick and his spouse know very, very well, and I've learned a lot from them. Uh, we struggle with diversity and inclusion at my company uh, because of some of the things that Bill Gurley talked about in terms of the, uh, the pipeline uh, as far as engineering talent. But I am very proud of the fact that at Rocket Lawyer, uh, we do have 49% people of color, 61% uh, are white, uh, 43% are female. Uh, three of the seven people on our board are people of color and women. Uh, and yet in certain parts of the company, we are still very underrepresented, especially in uh, engineering. Uh, and so uh, even with an African-American founder and CEO, uh, diversity inclusion can be, can be hard and you have to work at it. Uh, a lot of this business is based on relationships. And I've been uh, hardworking, of course, but also blessed. Um, I was hired by a guy named Craig Johnson, who was the founder of Venture Law Group. Uh, he made me one of the only African-Americans in the mid-90s with a Sandal Road office. Uh, interestingly, I, I shared uh, a building at 2775 Sandhill. We laugh about it now with uh, one of our investors, Robert Smith, uh, and we never knew each other, I guess, because we were working so hard at the time. Um, you know, not only that, uh, at BLG, I was put on the best clients um, by a guy named Josh Green, a guy named Jim Brock. Uh, Jim represented Yahoo as a startup. The first board meeting I ever went to uh, in, in my life, <laughs> being a kid from whose dad owned gas stations in St. Louis, the first tech board meeting I ever went to in my life was uh, a company that Mike Moritz uh, from Sequoia invested in called Yahoo. They had five employees at the time. And uh, I got to work with the Yahoo team, the founders, uh, at that very early stage in the business up through their IPO uh, as the only African-American in the firm and a very junior one at that. And it, it changed the trajectory of my career. Uh, as well as the other, I got to represent Goldman Sachs. Uh, they actually led the Yahoo IPO and on and on. So they put me on the best stuff in the firm. Uh, and I was able to meet people um, as a result. And so when I started a company only two years after I got out of law school, I was able to raise money. Um, 
There have also been a number of African-American angels uh, involved in Rocket Lawyer. Uh, David Drummond uh, is still on my board, uh, who was the chief legal officer at Google. Uh, David Hornick, uh, you know, when it was tough, and I represented a lot of startups. So I, I represented one startup, uh, Sarant, uh, and I remember the CEO traipsing around, a uh, uh, white uh, CEO, uh, traipsing around uh, Sandal Road, couldn't raise any money. Uh, he, he, he was a very eccentric, wonderful man. And he laid down on the floor in my office when I was a practicing lawyer and I was representing the company. And he was getting no after no after no. Well, two years after that uh, near meltdown by that CEO, Cisco acquired the company for uh, $7 billion. And, uh, and he couldn't raise money two years before that. Same thing with Rocket Lawyer. We, I, I walked around Sandhill Road um, when the company hit a speed bump uh, a few years ago, trying to raise money, and I, and I couldn't. Uh, we got the money from, uh, ultimately, somebody that I'd known for a long time, David Hornick at August Capital. They're very happy now. Uh, we are one of the fastest growing legal tech companies uh, in the world. Uh, as I said, you know, around $100 million of revenue, high growth on the top line. We've been profitable for years. Uh, but look, uh, where I guess I'll end it because I'm looking forward to people's questions and answers, and I've got 25 years of doing this, uh, I'll end it with a couple of thoughts. One is, is this is hard for everybody. This is hard for everybody. Uh, it's, it's not only hard because you're black. It may be harder uh, because you're black, but it's hard for everybody. Um, and, and, and we can't lose sight of that. Uh, number two uh, is I sit in a unique vantage point because we've got 27 million uh, people with Rocket Lawyer accounts. Um, we're also in, in Europe now. Uh, and and we have offices in France and other countries in Europe. And so I get to see a lot of data and, and to see how this pandemic is affecting uh, real businesses, small businesses, uh, millions of those customers. And it's really hard out there. So um, everything, that, everything that I say, I go back and remember um, that there are some real structural problems in the world beyond Silicon Valley. Uh, that we at Rocket Lawyer see every day. The legal system is completely broken. Uh, people can't afford it. Uh, that's the, our mission is to make justice more affordable uh, for everybody. Uh, restaurants can't operate. Businesses are failing. There's 3.7 million evictions uh, every year under normal circumstances, and there's about to be a real crisis there. So uh, I say all of that uh, and wrap it up with uh, – this is a very hard uh, thing to try to rub two sticks together and create a billion dollar business is hard for everybody. And number two, uh, even then we're blessed to have access to capital, access to talent and resources uh, that that most of the other places in the world uh, can only dream of, especially at a time of uh, enormous distress like today. So I, I end it by being very optimistic and enthusiastic uh, and again, thank the organizers for making this conversation possible so that we can keep uh, progress moving in the right direction. Thanks. Thank you, Charlie. Um, our next speaker is John Rice. John is the founder of Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Go ahead, John.
Great. Uh, can you hear me, Mark? Go ahead. Yeah, perfect. Go right. ahead. All right. Uh, so, from my, I'll, I'll start by saying I do think Silicon Valley can play a key role in moving the needle on racial justice, and I think uh, it, we can do it if we change two things. You know, the first is changing our mindset to one that prioritizes a commitment to being well-informed uh, uh, about the underlying drivers of why we are where we are. And the second is if we change our practices so the ecosystem works for black and brown folks the way it's been working for uh, white folks for the last 40 or 50 years. From my perspective, the, the only way to marginalize racism and achieve racial justice is to put more economic mobility, economic power, and economic influence in the, in the hands of people of color. And that's what increases the cost of all forms of racist behavior, and that's actually what also changes the narrative about black folks in the minds of white people. So when they're, when they're, when they're uh, white folks are more proximate to people of color in their organizations, when, they're, when black folks are moving up the ladder with them in their communities, and when, they're, when, when black people of color are in, are in positions of power outside of sports and entertainment, you know, uh, that's what changes the narrative. And, and when the narrative changes, that's when policing changes, when culture in, in our organizations becomes more inclusive, and, and, uh, and, and when the most accelerating networks, social networks, look different, and when deal flow uh, becomes more equitable. And most important, uh, when the economic pie gets larger for everyone. You know, the, the tech startup ecosystem is, you know, as ever, people have been saying, an unprecedented wealth and job creation engine. The top five tech companies are worth over like, like seven trillion today, and VCs invested, you know, uh, almost 70 billion in startups in the last year. But at the same time, this ecosystem is also the epicenter of wealth disparities in this nation. One percent of venture-backed founders are black. Just under two percent are Latinx. Uh, and I think, according to the the, the black founder list, only 345 total black founders have ever raised venture capital. Meanwhile. 4,000 white founders were backed by venture capital just in 2019. Uh, and then just 3% of you know, investing professionals at the, at, the, at the venture capital firms are black and 5% are Latino. So, you know, yes, ask ourselves, you know, who are, making, who are the folks making decisions on who gets funded? So my view is that you know, the path to racial justice requires putting more economic power and influence in, uh, in the hands of people of color, then the obvious levers in the tech e ecosystem are are fourfold, increasing the the number of Black and Latinx investors, you know, on the uh, from a from a venture capital standpoint, increasing the number of Black and Latinx led startups that get venture funding, increasing the number of uh, of, uh, of of minority leaders in the major tech companies, and the fourth is increasing the number of, of people of color entering and pursuing careers in the tech sector overall. And how do we do that? And I I, I think the for me it starts with under you know we all need to understand that that uh, eliminating what I call, you know, third-degree racism, you know, offered and referred to as institutional racism, but uh, that, that third, eliminating third-degree racism is the catalyst to expanding economic power for people of color. I, you know, I talk about sort of third-degree racism in a, in a piece I did in the Atlantic a couple of months ago, uh, uh, and, and it, and it third-degree racism, racism is, uh, is akin to sort of involuntary manslaughter in the prosecutorial world. You know, we are not trying to hurt anybody, but we create the conditions that shatter someone else's future aspirations. So in this world, third-degree racism is when employers and educational institutions 
fail to unwind practices that disadvantage people of color in competition with white folks for economic and career mobility. Uh, and the tricky thing is that th this dimension of racism is, you know, is kind of is very hard to root out because most of even our most enlightened white uh, leaders don't realize that they're engaging in it. Uh, and, and it requires a mindset uh, change to move the needle. And, and the path to rooting it out uh, is, you know, it starts with, you know, with white leaders just becoming more informed about how the practices that they perceive to be meritocratic are actually disadvantaging people of color. And what frustrates me is that even our most forward-thinking white leaders in tech, and more broadly than tech uh, as well, you know, those whom we admire the most as, the, uh, as uh, the most brilliant, most innovative in the world, are at the same time not intellectually curious enough to be well-informed about the underlying drivers of, of why we are where we are. And as a result, they fail, you know, they fail to unwind practices that make it harder for, for, for black and brown folks to compete with whites and further concentrate and, and continue to further concentrate power in the hands of white folks. So one example you know, of, of what we need to stop is shifting the responsibility for moving the needle onto the backs of, of, of people of color themselves or the organizations that are working to advance them by saying that it's a pipeline problem that they don't have full control of. And how many times have we heard tech executives and venture capitalists say uh, it's a pipeline problem, but not back it up with a quantitative uh, analysis of that pipeline? And I, I feel I've got to challenge folks and say that if we were intellectually curious enough uh, to look at the National Science Foundation website, we would find you know, that 22% of computer science, math, and engineering BS degrees, even five years ago, were granted to African Americans and Latinos. Okay, and that actually equates to 50,000 folks a year, 250k over the last five years, uh, um, who with who are graduating from college with computer science, math, and engineering degrees. That tells me that we've got a meaningful pipeline uh, uh, coming out of college. And then if you just do a back of the envelope analysis of I would call the most narrow assessment of the MBA pipeline coming into tech. Just look at you know uh, the number of Black and Latino uh, MBAs, you know, MBA graduates from Stanford and Berkeley over the last 35 years who have STEM undergrad degrees. Okay, just do back them up and you get probably somewhere between 500 and 750 folks, but that somehow hasn't translated into one partner at a top 10 VC firm, and I don't think any founders of of, of organizations that are over a billion dollars uh, in revenue. So, so if we are, you know, my, so my view is if we, if we are more informed about these data points, you might conclude that what we need to do is just proactively nurture, harvest, and connect that pipeline, understand where the leakage points are, and just take actions to address it. Uh, and instead, I think we continue to tout the, uh, I'll call it the, you know, the, the Uber story that I saw several times as an example of how Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. Like uh, I think I saw an NPR and Business Insider where Chris Saka decides to fund Travis Kalanick, you know, Uber, you know, uh, because he saw how his stop at nothing competitive drive after watching him obliterate Chris's dad in Wii Tennis at Chris's vacation home, okay, up in the mountains. So, so think about it, you know, the prerequisites to get funded, okay, to have the story that, that, that Travis had was to know Chris well enough to get invited to his vacation place in the mountains to be fortunate enough to be hanging with his dad there, okay, to Chris's dad, and be comfortable enough there to abuse your host's father in Wii Tennis, okay, uh, to, and, and think that that wouldn't kill your chances of impressing Chris, you know, uh, 
uh, Chris Saka. So, so what's the scenario where a black person or even a white woman who was not in a relationship with someone there could have been at that vacation place in the first place? Not to mention, you know, the scenario where that where some where a black or brown person would believe that crushing his father, you know, in, in tennis and in weed tennis would deep, deep sex his or her chance of getting funded. So, you know, so white folks, you know, hear that story on NPR, and that and 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 it epitomizes the, the meritocracy, but we're not well informed enough to real to see the other side of it. Until you get we get informed, then our action steps will not change. Uh, and and I think the only way to address these issues and to stop doing things that that are reinforced third degree racism, is you know is to take actions that widen the road for people of color so they can compete on a level playing field. And when it comes to changing practices, uh, we need to to make the ecosystem work for people of color the way it works for white folks. Thanks, John. Um, our next speaker is Darren Dodson. Darren is the founder of Illumin Capital, a for-profit social impact investor. Darren, please go ahead. Thanks so Darren, much you're... for the opportunity to share. Um, such powerful remarks so far. I think um, one of the things that I'm reflecting on right now is that 52 years ago, Martin Luther King was assassinated for putting together the pieces between economic justice and racial justice in my industry has made almost no progress over the last 52 years. And I don't want to see in my lifetime that be the same in the next 50 years. And I think that my, my business, the asset management business, is 1.3% of $69 trillion of assets under management that are women and people of color owned and managed firms. And together with uh, Rick's wife, Dr. Jennifer Everhart, I wrote a paper about that and why that might be and why almost no progress has been made over the last 52 years. What we found is that after testing 180 asset allocators that manage trillions of dollars in capital, as we A-B tested them, with white and black-led funds as we showed the highest performing identical track records, what we found is that systematically those 180 asset allocators almost all chose white-led funds at the highest end of performance, which means, as John pointed out so well, John Rice pointed out so well, that if we don't look at the bias upstream at the top of the waterfall in order to solve this challenge, we won't make any progress. The fact is that people who have top performing, outperforming people in hiring processes and board selection processes and indeed an investment processes for fund managers and entrepreneurs systematically overlook and underestimate those that they are investing into which is a violation of fiduciary duty. And it's also uh, hurts their uh, returns. So this bias, this uh, deep and uh, challenging bias, many places it's implicit, some places it's ex explicit, but without addressing it, we will not be able to solve the problem. So that's a really important um, uh, building blocks to identify 
that the problem is not with black fund managers. The problem is not with black entrepreneurs. The problem is with the systematic biases of those that are managing those processes. And because the asset management business influences and owns almost all other businesses in the country and, and most of the world, we have to look at that as a key and central innovation point. Early in my career, I saw very similar things within the lending industry, where um, along with 60 attorneys, we proved at the Center for Responsible Lending systematic bias against Black and Latino homeowners and the number one way in which they would reach the middle class and overcharging and overtaxing. Um, and we helped to make that illegal in 18 states to overcharge and systematically discriminate uh, against people who had the same underwriting criteria as white-led households, but were systematically overcharged and their probably best chance of reaching the middle class in America. Again, the asset management business is the backbone of the structures that influence the educational system where black children are overexpelled by 4x the rate on average relative to their white peers by the exact same infraction um, that helps to you know, fuel the school to prison pipeline. And again, this is black and white teachers subjecting themselves to their own bias without uh, creating interventions and training like this present within our partnership with Stanford Spark uh, to help create these interventions, which we've now focused on the asset management business and the partnership with the Lumen Capital. So what do we do about it? I can tell you what I've done about it. Along with our team about at Illumin Capital, we have invested in seven um, private equity funds, venture capital funds and growth funds. And we require 10 years of implicit bias reduction training to unlock their uh, returns because indeed, if they can select the best entrepreneurs in the world, they will outcompete those that can't see them. So that's a one, one particular strategy. One of the most powerful moments of my last three weeks was the opportunity to work closely with Josephine McCall, whose father was lynched, um, Elmore Boeing in Boston County, Alabama, who wrote a book called The Penalty for Success. And this sent shivers down my back because her, her father, a successful entrepreneur who grew a hauling company across the state, who had white friends vouch for him in banks because he couldn't get loans with the same underlying economics, who was 39 years old, almost at my age, um, and almost the age of Dr. Martin Luther King when he was assassinated, um, was uh, you know, killed for his outperformance. And we see this kind of uh, metastasized within our system to the current day entrepreneurs um, and the systematic bias. And part of the reason we're here is because that bias uh, goes across all systems. Okay, Darren, thank you. All right, this, uh, that ends our prepared uh, speaker remarks and now we open up for question and answer and I encourage all the speakers to join in the conversation. Uh, we're gonna start our questions uh, for John Hennessy first. Um, John, you mentioned that you discussed board, repre uh, board representation uh, for minorities, and you thought about it in the context of uh, new seats. Um, why should we limit ourselves to new seats uh, versus the existing uh, board members? Um, why not look to the right or to the left and say, you know, maybe you should go and uh, be, take be taken by someone else? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Larry. I think board turnover is a useful thing, and I think good boards try to balance uh, that process of turning over board members so that they retain a base of in-depth knowledge while also refreshing the board and adding different perspectives and uh, hopefully improving diversity. Amazon is using uh, an interesting hiring technique. Uh, instead of focusing, focusing on resumes where you went to college, they give a uh, computer science exam asking them to write a program and then evaluating that program. Uh, do you think that will help eliminate um, systematic racism, um, or do you feel like that may go the wrong way um, and maybe encourage even more Asian success in these firms? I think it's hard to say without doing some measurement. I think trying to move away from a small set of schools that you hire from uh, certainly is critical to improve, improve diversity. And giving, giving young people opportunities through internships when they're still in school, um, looking at how well managers and recruiters are bringing in a more diverse workforce, those are all things that you can use to twist things and move them in the right direction. And, I, and making sure that, that everybody has, has the training against explicit and implicit bias, I think, is crucial. You mentioned uh, internships. Um, for a while, we had a substantial number of unpaid internships, um, and the state has come out against that and said that these uh, interns need to be paid. I'm not sure that has resulted in um, a reduction in total internships. How do you think about compensation and internships, particularly for those minority students who actually need to earn a buck? Yeah, well, we do compensate them. I think it is, it is critical. I think one of the challenges uh, we talked about, John talked about the number of uh, of bachelor's students, for example, that are black or Latinx. Um, that number has come up, but you look at the number of master's students, for example, and much of the tech industry hires people with master's, and the number goes down significantly when you go up to the master's level. But trying to get people in internships where they can earn some money and, um, and not have to deal with the burdens of college debt quite so dramatically I think is important. Yeah, I, this is Charlie Moore. I, I'm just going to jump in on that one because uh, we at Rocket Lawyer, we have interns every year and uh, we have some uh, right now, of course, with everybody working from home. It's interesting having these law students and college students um, in our internship program, uh, you know, working from the, the homes they grew up in. Um, but we, we have a policy not to do um, unpaid internships. And for whatever, for whatever that's worth, uh, um, I, I, I very much encourage uh, you know everybody who can pay for labor to pay for labor. I just think that's a, a bad look uh, in in general with income inequality and um, the trends uh, that that are uh, happening in the world. Uh, it's different in other industries, but uh, I just wanted to throw my two cents in there for paid. Uh, paying people for the work that they do. Uh, yeah, this is Nicole. I absolutely agree. John, uh, you were previously the president of Stanford University, and obviously we're in a very unusual um, campus teaching online COVID experience. Um, 
from your context of having that very senior position, how do you think about how this will impact uh, the university uh, and the and schooling in general? Well, it's uh, I'll tell you, it's caused a lot of stress. Some of it, particularly on our first generation students. Um, you know, when they're in the university, we can at least hide some of the dramatic uh, economic inequality that exists uh, in our country. Um, but we, you know, we've got students working at home where they don't have a room where they can go. They don't have a good internet connection. They don't have the things that enable to do this. So there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen to our lower income and first generation students. Uh, the other thing you notice, Larry, is the people who hate this the most are the students. The faculty don't like teaching this way, but the students hate it. They hate not being able to get together and have those informal uh, meetings and, and hang out with fellow students and debate topics. Um, so that, that, I think, is, is a reminder of what's valuable about that residential undergraduate um, experience. I think as far as big classes go, you know, big lecture classes, they may actually be better online. Uh, they certainly allow uh, students to ask questions more easily in a less intimidating environment. Um, so I, I think we'll learn something from this process. Um, but boy, I, the sooner we can get back to meeting students in person, the better off I think we'll be. Okay, final final question for for John here. John, you you talked finally about the role of of or you alluded to the role of potential role for Google in addressing the pipe what you call the pipeline problem. Uh, could you say more about how we could address the pipe or how how a company like Google could address the pipeline problem beyond simply offering internships to kids who are ready to move into them? Yeah, Rick, I think it's a good question. I think we need to, you know, if you, if you look at I, one of the great sins in America in addition to racism is the fact that we don't offer a high-quality K-12 experience for every single kid. And it is, a, it is a disgraceful situation when you look at the quality of education and what's offered uh, to kids who don't have the same advantages uh, that many of our kids here go to Palo Alto schools have, for example. Um, so that's a, that's a gap which I think Perhaps technology can help fill, but making sure that uh, these uh, districts that ha don't have as much uh, financial resources have access to technology, have a way to get it in place, have a way to get uh, online technology working, especially with the, with the pandemic raging and uh, a situation where it looks like a lot of school districts are not going to be in person. Um, so getting technology out there and getting software which can help these kids learn, I think, is, is a crucial thing. If we're not going to actually increase the inequality that we already have, uh, both racially and economically. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh so let's broaden the conversation, or let's take, I want to take the conversation toward uh, venture capital, move away from the large companies and talk about venture capital and, and the startups and that part of the ecosystem. And we've heard uh, insightful comments from all of our commentators that seem to have two different models of how uh, Silicon Valley is working. One is that decisions are made based on talent uh, and, and, and know-how, right? And maybe there's a pipeline problem there. Another is that decisions are made on, on relationships and comfort and familiarity. Uh, which of those is it? Um, do we, what's the, what's the mix of talent on the one hand and relationships on the other? Uh, this is for, you know, Bill, Charlie, 
uh, Darren and um, John. I'll jump at this. Uh, I, I think there's a really unique opportunity to leverage the tools and technologies we have today to short circuit the networking issue that you're bringing up. Um, if you look at the work of some of the organizations I mentioned, um, like AllRays um, and BoardList, a heavy part of what they're doing is building, like if you would, many social networks where they connect um, people very quickly. And when I heard the comments about the the number of uh, bachelor students that are out there and available, um, or the number of MBA students that are out there and available, if if those were aggregated and connected in a very quick way, and then connected to the firms that want to make a change and want to 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 you know, because even even Charlie mentioned it's hard for him to meet the goals that that he's after, and so I I think there's an opportunity there to streamline the networking part so that those those former barriers can be dealt with in a in a more quick manner. What I found just um, is that, like James Baldwin said, many know, but many um, uh, are not committed to changing. And the reason why many aren't committed is because being committed means being in danger. And being in danger of what? Losing one's identity is the way he landed the point. And I think that the mysticism in which Silicon Valley exists and the leader of firms exists is the idea that black people and people of color are lower performers. And that that, that mystical idea helps to shape. Because if we thought that investing in women and people of color was like machine learning and AI algorithms, we'd invest and figure it out. We'd put it into R&D budgets within universities to transform the world and do the underlying learning through research and development to figure it out. And we expect that, by my analysis, there's about $35 trillion in underestimated returns in the asset management business because what we expect is women and people of color to make up about half based on the talent present in the world. If we believe that, we'd invest in changing that so that it would be a reality just like every other area that we invest in within the venture capital, private equity, and growth industries. So what, what the, the idea, and we build networks in places that we've never built them before when we believe there's a financial opportunity. We invest in the um, Sergeys and Larrys of the um, past and the future when we believe that that's something that will transform the world and the economic wealth creation of people. But I think that what's missing is even in spite of the 30 years of evidence of outperformance of black managers, for example, and even with the creation of emerging manager programs, which have delivered 1.3% of $69 trillion in women and people of color in the asset management business, we still lack the courage, we lack the execution to back up what we know in fact and, and create that future. So I think that the networking ability of people to find the best MBAs, I, I'm a product of John Rice's program, MLT, 
and um, he's created, you know, and showed companies for the last uh, 12, 13 years since I graduated from that program and went to Stanford Business School and where I now serve on the board of the business school. Um, and there's a systematic problem that is upstream in the ability of people to invest in this transformation and change. And if we thought it was a $35 trillion opportunity, investing $50 billion in order to figure that out would be a, a little bit of money um, in terms of to achieve what we thought was there. I just don't think people are really acting like the evidence is suggesting and investing like it's suggesting. Wow. So, Darren, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Rick, could I chime in with just another perspective on, on, the, on how you move the needle? You talked about the talent or relationships. And I would say, you know, it's not either talent or relationships. It's not built, this ecosystem is not built on either. It's actually, it's built on talent if you have the relationships. Uh, and I would say in particular trusted relationships. So I do feel that there, you know, there are tools and the technology that can play a convening role. Um, but folks like Bill Gurley need to know, you know, the, you know, these folks via his own social professional circles or he has to have these folks, a broader set of people, teed up to him by folks whom he trusts. Just that's how the world works, okay? And it's not going to change. It's probably too much to ask Bill to meaningfully change the contours of his, you know, of his social networks at this stage. So what we can do in the near term, you know, is surround him with people who have a broader set of relationships who can tee up excellent. Uh, people of color, founders, potential investors, LPs, and so forth. Uh, and that's how it needs to work. I feel, you know, if you were to go and ask, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the white folks on this call and, and ask them how many people of color were at their wedding or their, you know, kids or kids' weddings or their cousins' weddings, they would probably say very few, if any, right? And, and so that's, just the, the, you know, that's history. There's nothing malicious about that at all. So what are we, the question is, what are we going to do to actually, in a, an efficient way, expand, bolster uh, uh, the set of trusted relationships so, uh, that folks like that have? Uh, and that's going to be important to move the needle. Well, you have to, this is Charlie again, you, you have to measure it. And um, that's why I led with our numbers. Um, um, I, I did it because I saw um, well, actually one of our customers and and uh, Wojcicki at um, at uh, 23 and Me. Um, she gave out her numbers. Um, they're a customer of ours, and so I thought okay, I'm not going to be shamed, and so uh, I started giving out our numbers as well, uh, even though uh, we've got some work to do. Um, and in Silicon Valley, we run our businesses mostly based on um, metrics and OKRs, objectives, and key results. Um, and uh, the venture capital industry uh, isn't alone. The entire uh, tech industry is just getting started with uh, these sorts of diversity metrics uh, even being uh, public. And so um, I think that's where it starts because uh, the folks who sit on these boards and, you know, who, who hold uh, executives like, like me and my P 
peers accountable, uh, demand metrics. Uh, they say you you uh, you achieve what you measure, right? Um, and so I think that's the, the that's going to move the needle uh, across the board. That'll push people into relationships that maybe they didn't have. And 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 ultimately, I think it'll be it'll it'll actually lead to stronger products. It'll lead to um, more innovation and invention when uh, underrepresented communities are are understood better. Um, uh, I can give many examples of uh, that kind of necessity being the mother of very valuable invention. Uh, and so ultimately, I think it'll be a good thing to have uh, clear objectives, uh, clear key results in support of those objectives around uh, diversity and inclusion. This is Nicole. Um, I agree that I would push it one step further and and in those metrics, disaggregate it and actually look at the, the kinds of positions where diverse hiring is happening um, and ensuring that it's happening up and down the organization and not just in entry level or lower level positions or, you know, are they really, are you hiring into uh, positions responsible for P&L? Are you hiring into positions where there's, you know, possible for succession in um, the executive ranks? And that's going to be really important for eventual real change uh, across the board at, at the companies that are here. I have a question for uh, this is Larry. A question for Bill Gurley. You talked about the role of Asian Americans uh, in high tech and, and incredible numbers. Um, two points. One is is you know there are more than a billion Indians. There are more than a billion Chinese. I mean, when you look at American uh, STEM graduate programs. There are overrepresentation by Asian Americans. What what are the Asian Americans doing right to take such an enormous percentage of the uh, workforce uh, in Silicon Valley? And what are the things that they're doing right that um, other groups can look at to uh, succeed like they are? I'm not sure I'm an expert on this topic, but I, I will reflect on some thoughts. Um, one, you know, there is a there is a, I think there's been a problem in the U.S. for a very long time about social stigma around being a young person that loves technology, you know, just the, the, the notion of a nerd. It, that's very different from what's happening in those other countries that you mentioned. Um, if, you know, I think I read a number somewhere in China, 35% of undergraduates are engineers, and that number's like five in the U.S. And so the jobs of tomorrow are around these technologies, and yet we, and I don't, that's a much bigger problem. Something in the U.S. has evolved in a way that, that young kids are probably discouraged from embracing that. Uh, and that's across, you know, ethnicity. Um, so I think that's one, one thing. The other is just the large, law of large numbers that you mentioned. So if you assume the best and the brightest from a nation of a billion people are coming here, let's say the top, you know, 0.01%, um, that's, that's pretty powerful for those people to come here and, and you're skimming the cream, if you will, um, from them. And so you have a different representation. And then lastly, you know, and, and this is where I think we may just be starting to get progress on the gender front. You, you have so many success stories 
that that the best and brightest assume that success is probable if they go there. If 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 I were, you know, the top African American graduate at any you know, let's say the top twenty MBA schools, it's not apparent to me that I would want to rush off to Silicon Valley. And this was my point of, of flashlight number two, which is, it, it, you know, especially, and this is, the more I hear and learn, that's a place where I can't succeed. And so how do we change that narrative so that those people assume that if they come here, they're going to be very successful? If I could chime in, this yeah. is John Rice. I, to say that that, this is, what Bill's saying is so uh, insightful. You know, this is, you know, this is an, the issue here is uh, not an issue of numbers, not a pipeline issue. It's an information asymmetry issue, right? And and it starts with what Bill is saying is if you don't have relationships, if you don't see people, you know who uh, you believe you can become. If you don't have relationships with those people, if you are coming from the East Coast, you know if you are if you if you are coming out of college with a ton of debt and you're a first gen student, as John Hennessy was saying, you know. Uh, your perception of risk, okay, uh, uh, related to, you know, uh, when you think about the trade-off, coming out to the valley and joining, you know, Facebook before it was well-known, which was not that long ago as an employer brand, okay, you know, versus going to a well-known company, you know, Fortune 500 company on the East Coast, the perception of risk is so much higher, and it doesn't change until those folks actually have more connectivity to people out there making it happen. Uh, and that's really, you know, the, the, I think that one of the things I'm optimistic about is that that's an easier problem to solve than uh, a pipeline problem or, 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 or some other challenge that we've got to fix. And I just thought I'd speak to the point because um, I did come to Silicon Valley as a black man. Um, but I came and, and started a venture capital fund of funds uh, here, and and I know the the data uh, and what it says the probability of success is, but I also know that if people didn't confront racism at different times in history uh, because it was the right thing to do, um, and and this has the added benefit of if it's successful and showing that. Um, the talent of so much of the country is present in the under in the currently latent value in the economy um, that, that that we would have never had the changes that we've had in our society so far. Um, so I I came because it was hard, and I came because it might never change without leaders like uh, John Rice and John Hennessy and so many others. Nicole, who's on the on the uh, on the call as well. Um, and 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 it, it really takes people pushing for change in order for things to change. And I do I do believe that networks um, are a part of it, but allies and people pushing on the levers of change um, who are white are part of that as well. And and don't forget the scoreboard. When I mean, we talked a lot about basketball at the end of the game, there's a scoreboard, and I think that there. Uh, the scoreboard of 98.7% white men owning the asset management business and, and leading the firms in it is suboptimal um, and, 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 and sort of it, 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 it hurts both returns and the success of overall uh, advancing in society. 
So I think that we can do a lot to change that across boards, across investments, across, you know, looking at the uh, hiring, promotion, retention, and attraction. I just offer a piece of um, uh, research around uh, Asian Americans in, in, in uh, Silicon Valley produced by Ascend, which shows that Asian Americans are the most recruited um, but the least promoted in Silicon Valley. So we'd have to ask ourselves, for those of us that love the normal distribution um, and those of us that love, uh, you know, all aspects of finance and looking at statistics, why is that? Why is it that Asian Americans are the most recruited and least promoted in Silicon Valley? And what about those other groups that are not uh, recruited, you know, uh, at all? Um, to, to positions within firms. What does that do to hurt our overall growth as a world, as a country, um, and indeed as individual firms? And how can we change that? And we can, how, so the scoreboard I look at is 35 trillion uh, within 10 or 20 years uh, that would be measured more optimally by, you know, the women and people of color within the country. So if I could chime in one other thought, um, you know, we're, we should be, I've been in Silicon, have had a Silicon Valley career for 25 years. Uh, and in that 25 years, uh, there's, there's not really been a material scaling at all of um, the number of African-Americans, there's, uh, nor, nor women actually, in terms of a, a material scaling of it, which is what uh, tech businesses are all about, um, and 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 so how do we it's it's how do we change that sort of growth trajectory um, is what I'm trying to think about the most. Uh, we we have you know evidence of um, trailblazers, pioneers, uh, that sort of thing, um, but it seems like each generation we're still at that you know, early stage trailblazer, pioneer, there's one or two examples. Um, you know, it feels like uh, uh, you know, Congressman Lewis just passed. And one of the stories that um, makes me emotional time and again is thinking about John Lewis being a, uh, a young man in, you know, a rural community um, and hearing Dr. King and writing to Dr. King and, and what did Dr. King do? He sent him a bus ticket. And Congressman Lewis talks about that all the time. We talked about that all the time. Sent him a bus ticket. And, you know, I had folks like that. I mentioned uh, one of them, Craig Johnson, who gave me a job and put me on, on uh, the best clients. Uh, the first attorney that I met as an intern at Wilson Sonsini, big Silicon Valley tech law firm, was a man named Harry Bremen, who's African-American. Um, and one of the few African-Americans. So those um, trailblazers are incredibly important. However, I really uh, argue that we should be beyond that by now and into the scaling part. And that's why I, I, I'll relentlessly come back to and, 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 and I'm trying to you know, get my own voice around um, the fact that there, there have to be metrics. It is about numbers. Business is about numbers. It's about metrics and accountability to those metrics. Um, uh, I feel very strongly about that. And until uh, the customers of customers care about those metrics, um, we're not going to be able to, to
to scale. It's not going to scale. Um, I'm absolutely convinced of that. And so, Charlie, let me follow up on that. This is Rick. How, how do we get companies to uh, commit to transparency? Uh, there seems to be some agreement that that's a, that would be a good thing, uh, but Silicon Valley is anything but transparent now in how it operates. How do we create buy-in around the ideal of transparency? There's got to be pressure on um, I'm, I'm, I'm really brief, Rick. Yeah, but I, I'll be super brief. brief you know, um, I study economics and, and law and, I, and you know, uh, economic incentives that, you know, business is ultimately about that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, where the economic incentives line up, um, you will get uh, the behavior that those economic incentives drive. <clears throat> That's my opinion. Yeah, there's got to be that pressure, and pressure that means is meaningful. So there's the economic pressure. I also think there's public pressure right now that we're seeing that is actually pushing some companies to act differently. So I think it's a combination of the two. Okay. Are the um, what are the, so we let's try to to uh, bring this down to a concrete level, what, what uh, specific sort of changes do we need that would, that would move us from, uh, you know, stated commitments and, you know, commitments to transparency even to actual changes in representation? Are there, are there particular initiatives that you think we need to push? No, I have a question, and it's, and, and Bill and John, um, well, actually, any any folks on the call, do you think that the folks who sit in positions of power and wealth and wealth creation, job creation, company creation, are willing to share that same position with people of color? Because I actually think that's fundamentally what we're talking about. That's a big question. Uh, so, Nicole, I have a thought on that and, and, and a thought or two on a couple of steps that we can take. Um, I think your, uh, you know, in my mind, this is the, your question is the most important one, right? Now that we have uh, had this aha moment as a country, you know, leaders and organizations in uh, across the tech ecosystem and well beyond uh, have made strong statements about uh, anti-racism uh, and and how they stand against it in all forms. And now that they've went, uh, and as they've made those statements, they've realized uh, they've heard from their uh, the people of color inside the organizations, uh, and they've been surprised, not shocked, about how uh, the External statements about the, what our organizations stand for uh, are not consistent with the lived experience of those inside, uh, and that has now elevated, you know, diversity and inclusion to an enterprise risk, a meaningfully high enterprise risk. Uh, and the the real question now um, is, uh, uh, especially if you if you buy into my perspective that the only way to move the needle on these issues is to actually expand. Uh, the uh, um, economic mobility, economic power, and economic influence, put more of that in the hands of people of color, 
you have to focus as on what you said, Nicole, which is people not on you know the bottom, not on internships, which although that is one component, but you have to move the needle on senior management, on 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 the stepping stones to senior management, middle management. You have to actually engage in conversations around what uh, John Hennessy said, which is, are you going to move people off the board, okay, in order to move people on the board? In addition to adding people of color when you're adding board seats, are and this so the fundamental question is, are 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 are, are white folks who um, who are leading organizations who have been in power for you know forever, are they do they view this as widening the road and expanding the pie for everybody? Or are they viewing this as uh, 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 having to give something up and taking something away from them? That's a seminal question here, and and I think this is the, the, the place that we're in as a country is we're going to prove to whether you know I I think I'm excited to see uh, whether uh, you know whether we on a going forward basis not focusing on sort of what's happened in the past but are we going to commit to things that actually move the needle. At all stages of the pipeline, uh, and in my view, uh, um, what you need to do, you know, uh, is, you know, is 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 focus in a comprehensive way on exposing, preparing, and harvesting that pipeline. And I'm not just talking about college or graduate school pipeline. I'm talking about a pipeline of lateral and, and and senior execs and board members and so forth. And we have to do that instead of waiting for that pipeline to flow right by our doors. You know, we have to stop recruiting like an elite university uh, uh, and start recruiting like an oil company, you know, uh, where if, you know, where they have, they invest billions of dollars, they find their smartest people, scientists who go out and identify where are those deposits of ore, you know, okay, of crude oil. You find them, you invest in building an infrastructure to actually go and get that crude out of the ground. You, you build a pipeline to get it to the refineries and you refine it and then you sell finished products. That's how we need to be thinking about this, as opposed to just waiting for it to go past our doors. Uh, and and uh, and we need to stop, you know, waiting for black and brown founders to knock on our doors as well. So that's a key thing: is just a change of mindset, a change of activities, and a willing that demonstrates a willingness to share, and in the belief that if we expand the 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 uh, diversity in our organizations, that that will expand. The pipe, that will expand the pie for everybody. I'll give one example of that. If you were to look at where it has worked, okay, uh, Bill Gurley talked about how it has worked so well with white women in Silicon Valley. Without question, there's meaningful progress uh, uh, and, and organizations, whether tech companies, venture firms are doing better as a result. We need to learn from that and, and, and uh, uh, draft on that for people of color as well. And then Rick Banks talk, you know, has talk, kicked off talking a lot about sports and basketball in particular. Okay, but if you look at, you know, the the value of NBA franchises in the, you know, in the mid to late 1960s and early 70s, where the vast majority of players in the NBA were from the United States and were white. Okay, uh, and you compare that, okay, to today, where 25 percent of, of NBA players are, 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 are international uh, and, you know, I don't know if the number is 60, 70% are African-American, okay? Um, what are, how much money, how much more, what are the franchises worth now, okay? How much more money are, are the white owners in the NBA making relative to what they were making 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? 
So that shows you if you diversify, you know, you ha actually expand the pie for everyone. And guess what? You know, I, I have never met a, you know, and I meet, a, you know, I talk to a lot of young basketball players, okay? I've never met a, a young white basketball player who was walking around thinking, man, you know, uh, the, you know, getting to the NBA is rigged against me because I'm white. I have a smaller chance to do it because I'm white. And, and uh, so, so it can work if you have the talent and you have the relationships and you have a prescriptive approach to, to changing. John Rice, this is Larry. Um, you mentioned in your talk about blacks moving up the ladder um, and that, <clears throat> that it was uh, outside of sports entertainment uh, as the exceptions. Uh, Two-part question. Um, I went and saw Chris Rock perform, um, just before the pandemic started, and he mentioned that he lives in English Short Hills, New Jersey, and that in his community lives Denzel Washington and Spike Lee. Yet his neighbors on his left is a Jewish dentist, and on his right is a Jewish orthodontist. And he asked the question, where are the black dentists? Um, how do we answer that question? And this is a question for, for me, for Rice? John Rice, yeah. Or for John Hennessy. Okay. John Rice. Yeah. Uh, how do you answer that question? Uh, I, I, I think what he is saying is, you know, that the, you know, the, the uh, very solid, you know, but not, you know, uh, you know, remarkable white person, okay, who has done well is living in these very privileged communities, right? But, you know, only the, uh, uh, you know, the most wealthy, the most famous, uh, you know, uh, people of color are living in those communities, right? I think that's what, that's the essence of what he was saying. Um, and I think the answer is, you know, is, uh, uh, just what we've been talking about is which which is you have to have critical mass of people of color in every one of these ecosystems right you have to until you get to uh you know a, a, a um a, you know at you know if until you you know until you get to critical mass of people of color in places like the menlo circus club okay other exclusive clubs uh, you know, in, in, you know, in the Bay Area and beyond, uh, until we get the, 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 the very solid senior executive who not many people have heard of in those networks, then, you know, we're still going to be talking about exceptions to the rule. And, and this is the issue about the narrative that, uh, uh, that needs to change, right? Is the narrative now is about, um, you know, that white people have about black people is that with the exception of entertainers and, and, uh, and athletes and so forth, right? Black people are, you know, um, not living in the same circles. They're not working in the same organizations. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the black people that we don't know, we feel in too many cases, our inclination is that they're scary to us, or we are, you know, uh, you know, we are, uh, they are inferior to us, and that won't change until the the the, the Latino dentist, the black doctor, you know, uh, 
those people are in the same, you know, you know, uh, social uh, and and professional networks that you know their peers are who are white, and that's that's the challenge that we have. But I, I, I think um, just to jump in, and this is Darren. Um, one of the reasons why uh, there aren't as many black dentists, of which my grandfather was one, um, is because of the Flaxner Report, which was funded by foundations uh, that basically led to the analysis in the early 20s that all black medical schools should be shut down because black people have more germs than white people, which was an unfounded, um, an unfounded uh, kind of analysis. Um, so when you literally look to the structural sources of the AMA, the American Medical Association, and you look to that report that led to the shutdown um, of, of all but Howard and Meharry medical schools, um, that produced black doctors because no other schools would accept them at the time because of segregation. You can also find the roots of Chris Rock's, uh, you know, oftentimes critical um, and, and genius analysis of structural and historic racism present in his, I mean, you know, almost, you know, kind of, he has so many powerful ways of enlightening people that uh, oftentimes wouldn't be unwilling to hear about the very uncomfortable systematic racism and structural racism that, that, that led in this example, for example, to the shutdown of many black medical schools based on a philanthropically funded report. Um, so again, so part of what I do is I brought a, a trillion dollars in asset allocators that are part of my investment community um, at Illumin Capital and our investment community uh, through uh, context building of slavery, lynching, mass incarceration, so they could see the fingerprints of these activities on the current state of the imbalance and suboptimality in the current asset management business and economy. Because many of us have forgotten how we got to where we are. And yes, we need a pathway forward um, and, and the, to kind of realign on how to get to where we need to go. But sometimes our analysis is off unless we go to the past. Yeah, I want to add to that. And, you know, when I opened with um, folks being personally committed and understanding and educating your, themselves, this is what this exactly is what I was referring to. We have to understand how the current systems that we're operating in and trying to manage and as black leaders trying to navigate and the goalposts seem to change every time we get to what we think is, you know, a point of success. Um, we so many of our systems are fundamentally based in in racist structures, um, and unless we understand that, it's going to be very hard to fundamentally change them. The Color of Law is another book, and it highlighted redlining what happened in real estate and banking here in Silicon Valley. These examples of what happened in Palo Alto and Memo Park, and how black folks couldn't buy and why, and how the real estate industry just completely manipulated where black families could and could not buy and, and, and valuing property. So, it, it, you know, the, the, the progress that people are making, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, 
everyone saw it. And for many people, for those of us who are black and um, have had experience or family and friends who have had experience with police, that was not a surprise to us. For many white Americans, it was like, oh my God, I guess what they've been saying is actually true. Look at, look at what's happened. It's, you know, so that was, that's just one system. Every system we operate in has, you know, has been based in a racist structure, every system. So how as leaders are you gonna educate yourself and understand that and then start to dismantle that and create something that's better and more equitable for everyone. Okay, there's Nicole. Um, you, Nicole, you mentioned earlier that um, the African American community is unbanked um, and they don't have access to mainstream banking. Why do you right. Why do you think that's important? Well, it, many bank communities don't have a bank there. So where do you, How do you think they get cash? from completely predatory systems, check, check cashing, payday, lunch, payday loans, um, which means you're paying somebody a ton of money to get your paycheck cashed, right? That, how is that fair? So um, if you don't have relationships in mainstream banking and finance, you are not going to have access to auto loans, personal loans, mortgages, credit building uh, facilities that allow you to get ahead, that allow you to secure some sort of financial stability for, for you and your family. There are ways that we can help make that happen. You know, we invested in, um, we made an $8 million impact investment in self-help credit union to open a branch in East San Jose. It was not a bank there in that community. Those funds made capital available for low-income residents so that they could get mortgages, so they could take out loans and auto loans at lower interest rates, not exorbitant astronomical interest rates, which keep them in the bad kind of debt for years and years. So if if you're stuck in a system that is working against you, you can't even get to a level playing field you, it, so how do we get black communities just into the financial system in ways that aren't predatory and hurting them? So that's why it's important. There's, you know, there's, it's impossible to get a leg up if you're always behind. Okay, let me, hi, this is Rick. Let me, let me go back to one of the issues that's been floating through this conversation, um, which is that most people think about, uh, about racial conflict as a question of how to divide the pie, right? How to, how to cut up the pizza, if you will, uh, and that we have these distributional issues, and there are issues of fairness and issues of equity, and everybody would, would I think, agree that that's partly what's going on. But then we've also heard that uh, there's a question here about enlarging the pie. I mean, we've heard that in, in Darren's comments that uh, the underrepresentation of African Americans, say, in the investment community, leaves that firms are leaving billions of dollars in profit on the table. Uh, we've heard that in other comments as well. There's this question that that capitalism has not only been unfair, but that it's also been inefficient in a way. And and I think that's a, a view or position that many people uh, will be skeptical of. So how do you make the, the claim or make the case or try to convince people that what we're talking about is not only equity, how to divide the pie, but also how to enlarge the pie, and that the current system is actually resulting in a smaller pie for all of us? How do we make that case? Well, 
Well, this is Charlie. There, there, there are so many wonderful uh, new inventions to be created. Uh, you're, you're never at the end of it. Um, this is a conversation that I just drove across the country with two of my kids, and it's a conversation that I had with two, two of my, my sons. Uh, uh, it always seems like everything's been invented and, until somebody <laughs> invents the next big thing. So uh, when I talk about, about metrics, I think we create an amazing virtuous cycle. For example, uh, when I started Rocket Lawyer, uh, a lot of everyone thought we were taking, uh, we were competing with LegalZoom. I told them over and over we, we were not, that we were, uh, that, that the business was based on an invention. Ultimately, that invention did get patented, um, and, and um, we're inventing right now, uh, for example, something that was inspired by the tragic martyrdom of George Floyd that we're announcing next week um, publicly, so I can't announce it in this call. But um, what you, that all started, the, the fact that um, m the majority of people who use Rocket Lawyer have never hired a lawyer before. So we know we aren't taking away from anything. Um, we're expanding the pie so that more people can get access to legal services, more people can incorporate companies on and on um, than would have done it before, like more people started to fly when they had a $49 plane ticket from Southwest. That started by myself having access to Silicon Valley. Um, and that venture law group measured uh, their performance uh, in terms of diversity, and I was a beneficiary of that, and I'm very proud to say it. So uh, the jumpstart is when uh, all of us across the industry are, are measured against metrics and milestones and deliverables in terms of diversity inclusion. And then I fully believe that a wonderful, serendipitous, uh, virtuous cycle will begin because we will have gotten the benefit of, of different ways of thinking, different communities, uh, and that is the flywheel of invention that this industry relies upon. But it, it does take a, a nudge, and it takes that initial uh, spark, that initial catalyst. And again, I, I think that initial catalyst is when, when firms 360 degrees around the Silicon Valley ecosystem are measured uh, against diversity, diversity inclusion metrics, which brings new blood, new folks in, women, African Americans, other people of color, and 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 then the, the magic, you know, the magic uh, really happens, and uh, there are there are a number of examples of that already, uh, but we are not scaling yet, and uh, when we're scaling you're going to see uh, just an, an incredible amount of uh, new inventions, new economic activity, Rick. And so um, uh, I can't wait. And I think, uh, I, I think it would be a shame for this moment to pass and not to get those metrics in place that start the flywheel that I just described. Okay, let me let me go back to to Bill Gurley's point from the very beginning, where he was talking about the the changing role of women in Silicon Valley. Uh, has that actually uh, resulted in 
companies operating differently uh, and different companies being funded, new types of companies sprouting up, uh, or is it simply that the that the we have different people, but they're making the same types of decisions? Bill, are you are you there? Yeah, no, I'm here. Okay. I, 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 well, let, me, I, let me let me tell you where I'm going with that, though, because the, the assumption okay. yep. of Charlie's answer, the assumption of Charlie's answer just now, um, and it's been of some of the earlier conversation as well, is that if you have different people in the positions, uh, different types of decisions will get made. Different people will get funded. Different type of companies will arise, and we'll have this flowering of, of new ideas that are in some way uh, distinct from the ideas that have come before. Uh, and women is one example that, that you gave where we've seen some change there. So the question is, uh, did that happen with women or are women kind of doing it the same way the men used to do it? Well, so when I when I spoke about that, and, and by the way, I, I reinforce what I said before. I don't think that is a solved problem. It's one where I think we've moved from um, what Charlie said was, you know, worrying about the problem to where we've gotten to some amount of scaling. And I also said that I felt that at this point it was um, systematic. And that's, I, I think, also consistent with what Charlie hopes to see in this area, which is is the success begets more success. And so the more women founders that you see out there, the easier it is for the next woman founder to to step off and do do that herself. And, and anecdotally, and I don't have high-level metrics, but anecdotally, I'm seeing that more and more and more and more. And the boardrooms I sit in are more and more and more gender equal. And the, you know, the executive teams that we work with are more and more and more gender gender equal. And so I do believe what Charlie said, which is there's this point at which you tip and all the success starts to become self-reinforcing. And I do think that's possible. And I also believe this moment in time is one to, to press, you know, press on. So there is awareness that wasn't there before. There are, you know, I, in the past four weeks, you know, and this is very recent, you know, I know of three high-level boards who have said, "Oh my God, we have to fix this. They're gonna, they're gonna make a change." The the vendor diversity initiative that I talked about that Xander's working on. If if we can get more Silicon Valley companies into that, that's not just impacting those companies, but every company they do business with, and and you create systematic effects that can drive change. And because I think what, what we're really searching for, which Charlie keeps hitting on, is is how does this transition from something that we're all aware of and nice to talk about to something where you get scale uh, around fixing the problem? And I, and I fundamentally believe that's possible right now. Bill, this is Larry. I wanted to follow up with one of these old points about uh, access to banking. You know, I think of Silicon Valley as a disruptor and, and a solution to a lot of these problems. Um, you know, for example, um, Uber will provide significant African-American employment and provide ride services for African-American uh, people that want rides. What, how do you think about how technology can help solve Nicole's yeah. uh, concerns about 
banking? Why do we need a, an old school uh, yeah, branch? I, I mean, I'm not sure this is consistent with the theme of the call, but I'm highly aware of this problem. My wife and I spend a lot of time with the Opportunity Fund here in Silicon Valley that tries right. to impact this. And, and you know, from my point of view, this is actually a Washington problem. Um, after Dodd-Frank, free checking went away. It used to be actually cheaper to have a baseline checking account than it is today. So I think there's a bit of regulatory capture. In every other country, every other major country around the world, the Fed has intervened and created a faster payment network. So in the UK and India and China, you can transfer money from one bank account to another in less than a minute at a cost of zero. And here, ACH takes three days. And so we have a regulatory capture problem on this one which I think is unrelated to, uh, I think Silicon Valley would create those. And, and even today, SoFi terms and services are way cheaper than Wells Fargo or anything else. So I think, I think that's happening. But it would accelerate if the Fed were to push through this faster payment initiative that they're looking at right now. But the big people that are pushing back are the senators and congressmen from the, from the areas with the big banks. Right, right. That might be the subject for a subsequent call. So yeah, let's. Hey, Rick, when you talk about um, Rick, when you talk about widening the pie, you know, and trying to make the case for that, I think, I think it's a challenge. You know, when you give examples or, or data, you know, it's often viewed as too conceptual or not comparable to you know uh, my business, or especially in you know when you talk about relationship businesses. You know, even when you share data like the McKinsey study that showed that you know EBITDA is higher for public companies with more diverse management teams, there's a you know, there's just a there, there's a challenge relative to whether that's comparable uh, to uh, a, anyone, any particular person's uh, business. And I <laughs> well, think my view is that you need, if you don't turn a profit, you go. Yeah, well, I wanted to jump in. Now. Right, right, but yeah. but, you, but I think that's why I think you need micro examples and experiences that change perspectives and drive momentum. When Bill's partners sit next to a you know a, a, a per, an investor of color, you know, on their team who sees something that they did not actually see that enables them to say yes to a deal and make a lot of money or say no to a deal that others say yes to and not lose money, then they start to say, oh, that's, you know, we're making more money. When, you know, when somebody introduces, when someone of color introduces Bill's partners to a deal outside of their network that makes them a lot of money, then they're going to start believing, you know, uh, and, then that's, and then they're going to be investing more behind that, you know, and that's how I think it would, it's like it's a micro, small experiences and examples that actually change mindsets and change behaviors. And I just wanted to follow up on that. This is Darren who was pushing the optimality of the larger pie. Um, there are 30 years of examples that the National Association of Investment Companies has uh, demonstrated both at the manager and company levels. And, um, and still things haven't changed. Um, it's kind of like Jackie Robinson, like when he was interviewed prior to integrating um, within Major League Baseball, people thought, oh, Jackie's going to be too slow um, to play with white people. They thought, oh, he can't, he can't see the ball as well um, as white people. It, it's sort of like the day has come, um, and the micro examples exist. I know because I, I help to create them every day at Illumin Capital by working our fund managers through a bias reduction process and investing in 160 companies or so um, that have this thesis uh, with the seven managers um, that we invest into, including the last largest black venture capital company in the, in the, in the country. So I, I think that 
part of what I see is that, and in, in, we've talked about biomimicry all the time within Silicon Valley and study nature to figure out optimality. There, I think the onus is on the 98% of white men that run the asset management business to prove why that's optimal. Because we look in the ocean, there's not one type of fish. We look in the sky, there's not one type of bird. We know biodiversity and ecosystems creates prosperity at higher and higher levels. And yet, 98.7% of the asset management business is controlled, owned by white men. And why, why, why is that the case? Why, you know, how can we work together to figure out how to optimize in this, you know, really important um, this, you know, vestige of um, the uh, earlier racism in this country's history that leads to suboptimal returns. One of the great gifts of the work that we do is that there's outperformance incentives, lots of reasons why. But if you um, forget that optimality is one of the underlying reasons why we're doing it, it leaves, and, and that the onus is not on black people to prove why they're better, it's on white people to prove why they dominate the entire industry when we'd expect almost half to be women and people of color by statistical probability. Uh, that's a strange thing to think about, and I think we don't want to lose the focus of that really important and unusual um, kind of reality of our world. All right, at well, this point of the call, I usually go around the room and ask what people are optimistic about. Um, historically, during some of these COVID calls, we can get ourselves pretty negative, and I always want to end the call on something positive. So I'm going to ask each of the speakers to think for a few seconds and then articulate uh, what they're optimistic about. Nicole Taylor, can I start with you? What are you optimistic about? Sure. Um, the fact that we're having this call and, and having the candid conversation and there are more voices in it and more people willing to commit to change. Thank you. Charlie Moore? Well, like I said, um, uh, we, we, we see a lot of the data out there of what, what folks are doing, and uh, it's incredible how many new businesses are getting started, uh, uh, which we're seeing because we help people incorporate businesses. So uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurship uh, going on right now, and, and uh, I'm incredibly uh, inspired by that. Great. Uh, John Rice? John, your mute button might be on. Sorry, I'm optimistic about it. You know, uh, about two things. One is just the, the conversations that I've been having over the last two months about with hearing the conviction that the leaders in, in the tech ecosystem have about moving the needle. You know, they, uh, I've, I've not heard this level of conviction before. And uh, I think it's really, it's inspiring for, for me. And I'm also optimistic, and this is more on a sort of a micro on my, my organization and our view is that, you know, we spent like the last seven years trying to put the foundational elements in, in place, you know, with the hope that this moment might come where folks are really uh, open to reassessing their practices and doing things different. Um, and, uh, uh, and that there would be, you know, that we could put in place something to build upon. And I'm excited that we're not, you know, we're going to be building from scratch. I mean, we've, we and other organizations, but we, I know it, uh, there's been a lot of good work over the last 10 years in terms of the pipeline tech. I know we've got 2,000 of our MLTers working in tech, uh, and 
uh, and we're bringing in 200 software engineers a year. We're just getting started, um, and uh, and you know we've we've got uh, you know five of our folks are founded co-founded venture firms that raised a, a, a collective total of over 330 million bucks, uh, and and 18 of our founders have raised you know of our 100 plus founders have raised half a billion dollars. So there's a there's 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 I'm optimistic because there's there's a foundation and the core elements in place to build upon. Now that we've got conviction, it's just about having these types of dialogues to get aligned on the, the how-to. And, and I think that as smart and as dynamic as the tech ecosystem is, I think we can figure it out. Thanks. Uh, Darren Dodson? What are you optimistic about? Um, I'm, optimistic, I'm optimistic that uh, my grandmother, who integrated the schools as a principal in Washington, D.C., uh, would smile down in 10 to 15 years and see the integration of the asset management business and the overall optimality of the lives and human condition improve for all globally. Bill Gurley? Yeah, I think the thing I'd be most optimistic about is, is the opportunity of this moment in time. Um, a couple of people just mentioned it, but I do think there is a heightened awareness and a heightened willingness to impact change. And so it, I think it's in, imperative that everybody push on this even more right now because I think the, the systems that have previously been in place are open to change. I want to blindside my co-host. Rick Banks, what are you optimistic about? Sorry, I was I was muting myself. That's rare, as my wife will tell you. But I was uh, I'm optimistic, uh, simply and inspired, frankly, by the fact that we were able to assemble this call and just to have these voices and these people and to sense the the commitment and the insight uh, and to be aware of the years, uh, in some cases lifetimes of work uh, people have put into building our nation and to making it a more fair and equitable place. So uh, I stand inspired by all of you. Great. Um, I want to conclude by uh, marketing our call for next week. Um, we're going to have sociologist Ito Tavori speak about AIDS prevention in Malawi. Patrick Sharkey, Princeton professor of sociology, will discuss violent crime in American cities. Lee Bukite, the legal scholar, will talk about emerging market restructuring. Miguel Kigel, former head of the Ministry of Finance in Argentina, will speak about how the pandemic is affecting Argentina. Alejandro Werner it runs the Latin desk at the IMF. He will be speaking about uh, the economies in Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela, and Brazil. And Hurley Dotti is the largest, runs the largest private equity firm in Africa. He'll be discussing the economies in Africa. With that, I would like to thank my co-host Rick Banks, all the speakers for their participation, and for the listeners for listening in. Thank you and goodbye. Uh, you can hang up. Rick, any last comment from you? Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.